Well, why don't we read from the scriptures while we're still standing here? Let's turn to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. We'll just read the concluding verses, beginning with verse 16. So, Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. You can be seated. I think we can see from these verses that we've just read that it is uh, a very um, important thing that we do not add to this book or take away from this book. Um, We want to deal with it honestly and carefully and prayerfully and That's what we desire for God to lead us and guide us as we study in this book so that we wouldn't go against what's written here. For the last number of weeks, we've examined this book, and it's not been intended to be any kind of a verse-by-verse exposition or examination of the book, but rather an attempt to give some help in understanding how we should approach the book, just as we're reading it on our own, how we should uh, seek to interpret it. I ended off last time by saying that we'd look at some areas where we should be cautious concerning current interpretations of the book of Revelation. In other words, we want to examine some teachings that should raise red flags when we hear them because we are hearing something that doesn't seem right, doesn't seem to fit in with other uh, basic Bible teachings. So that's what I want to do tonight. Uh, At least briefly look at some interpretations of Revelation that should raise red flags when we hear them. Now we'll only get on a few tonight, and actually what I'm going to do after we look through these is just give a brief time for questions or for other things that you might want to mention that you think of as red flags uh, when you hear certain interpretations of the book of Revelation, especially, especially in this area of prophecy, red flags in the area of prophecy. 
So <clears throat> that's what I want to do. Here's some things that I think uh, we should at least consider to be areas that would raise red flags for us as Christians when we hear these things. The first one, I think, um, should be obvious, and that is the thing of date setting. Date setting. The reason it's obvious is because the Bible clearly tells us that we need to be very careful about that type of thing. Um, If we're talking about setting a date concerning the Lord's return or the end of the world. Uh, No man knows when the end of the world is going to be. No man knows when Christ will come again. Uh, If we hear somebody set a date, automatically the flag should just go up. Um, Also, along that line, if you just study history, you know that the date setters have a very poor track record. (laughs) It's like... Zero. They've always been wrong. So um, that's a good indication that uh, this next person that you hear set a date is probably going to be wrong too. So um, uh, the the sad thing is that the history of, well, history in general and church history in particular is littered with supposed prophets and teachers who have made end-time claims and predictions that have turned out to be wrong. And that results in people uh, doubting the Word of God and uh, just even having the, the, the name of Christ being blasphemed, really, uh, by these dates setting. Now, uh, I, I just want to give you... Uh, a brief example of what we're talking about here. If you go on the internet and put put in something like failed end time predictions, you can get lists as long as your arm of all the prophecies that have been wrong. But let me, I thought it might be worth just, because it gives you kind of a feel for what, what this kind of thing is, <clears throat> uh, I thought it might be worth just doing some. Now I'm just going to start at the year 1000. Uh, you could, there was plenty before that, but one, the year 1000 uh, was a biggie because that was the end of the first millennium. And uh, apparently because, you know, in the, book of the Re- in, in the book of Revelation, it talks about this thousand-year period that we normally call the millennium. Apparently, a lot of people thought when they got to the year 1000 that this was a very... Uh, significant date in terms of prophecy. So, uh, at the turn of the new millennium, much of the preaching in Europe uh, revolved around sermons that were filled with images of the Last Judgment, uh, linking that year 1000 to the uh, return of the Antichrist, and so there was all kinds of uh, hyperactivity related to the end times right around the year 1000. Uh, right before that and the next 30 years after that were filled with all types of conspiracy theories and prophecies and predictions. Um, they even had the emperor Charlemagne's body dug up 
uh, disinterred because uh, there was some kind of a legend that there would be an emperor that would arise to battle the Antichrist. And they thought, well, surely this must be Charlemagne. So they dug him up to get ready for the return of the Antichrist. Uh, well, you know, the year 1000, and the, nothing happened. So when, when nothing happens, what do you do? You revise your estimate. And they said, well, we missed it here because we were going from the, the birth of Christ, measuring this thousand years. We should have gone from the, from the time of the crucifixion. So 1033 is the year. So that got to be a significant date. Um, so in that time period from about a few years before 1000 to 1033, there was a lot of paranoia related to the uh, second coming of Christ and the Antichrist and all that type of thing. So that was one significant date. Then in 1284, Pope Innocent III, who was not very innocent, uh, expected the second coming to take place in, in uh, 1284. Now, why was that? Why would 1284 be a significant date? Well... You take 666 and you add that to the time when Muhammad was born. So the, the rise of Islam plus 666, you have the time when Christ is coming. Pretty loopy. But nevertheless, it caused a lot of problem for people at that time. Uh, 1346 was when the black plague was spreading across Europe. It killed about one-third of the population. Well, in those type of times, it's ripe for people to make these end-time predictions. And so there was a lot of people uh, and, and preachers, uh, teachers, presenting the idea that this was a prelude to the end of the world, this spreading of the Black, black Plague in 1346. 1524, a bunch of London astrologers um, used the planetary alignments to calculate a flood that was going to come and wipe out civilization. Now, that's totally contrary. God said he's never going to set the flood again, but uh, nevertheless, the record states that around 20,000 people abandoned their homes and local clergymen built a fortress in which to stockpile food and water. You've got to get that stuff stockpiled for the end of the world. That was 1524. You might know that 1666 would be a bad year. <laughs> 1,666. That's 1,000 plus 666, the mark of the beast. So that was one that a lot of people were upset, and it just happened that... London burned down that year, 1666, which just added, well, I, I didn't mean this to be a pun, but fuel to the fire <laughs> of, of the already people uh, thinking that that was a very uh, possible year for a doomsday, 666. 1844, based upon uh, this man's interpretations of 
Daniel, the, the, uh, a man named William Miller, Baptist preacher, thought that Christ would return to earth during that year, 1844. He had it all worked out from the, from the, the uh, prophecy in Daniel. <clears throat> he initially figured the date to be March 21st, gathered thousands upon thousands of followers. Uh, that date came, and Christ didn't. And so he had to come up with another date, October 22nd, which didn't work out either. And, of course, it was, a lot of people were disappointed. They, you know, gathered up on top of hillsides waiting for Christ. Now, a splinter group that came out of that uh, Millerite movement was Seventh-day Adventists. Then you have, <clears throat> coming closer to home here, 1914 was one of the dates that the Jehovah Witnesses set. They said they've been setting dates for a long time. Um, but 1914 was one of the big dates for the return of Christ. And, of course, that's when World War I was going on. So, again, you have a time of turmoil, a lot of death, destruction, and that adds just a, a sense of impending doom. So they said 1914 was when Christ was going to return. Of course, he didn't. But they said, well, uh, actually... It was the beginning of his invisible rule. Uh, so they tried to weasel out of that one. A little closer to home, 1988, uh, there was a NASA scientist named Edgar Wisenot. Uh, I might not be pronouncing that right, but it fits well, doesn't it? Uh, who wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. It sold for more than 4 million copies. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. Didn't happen. The next year, according to one place that I read, he wrote a sequel. 89 Reasons <laughs> Why the Rapture Could Happen in 1989. Didn't sell near as well. <laughs> uh, a little closer to our time period, you got men like Benny Hinn. If you haven't heard of him, that's all right. Uh, he made a number of predictions in the 80s related to when Christ was going to come again. Let me, here's a sampling. A world dictator is coming on the scene. My, he's a short man. He's a short man. I see a short man. This is one of his prophecies that he gave. I see a short man who's a perfect incarnation of Satan. Never in my life have I seen anything happen like what's going to happen now. This man will rule the world. In the next few years, you will see him. But not long after that, you will see me. That's supposed to be Christ speaking there. You'll see me. He gave that in that particular prophecy in 1989. A little bit later, he gave this one. We may have two years before the rapture. Can I be blunt with you? I don't even know if we have two years left. I'm going to prove it to you from the word tonight that we have less than two years left. That was in 1990. So that's an example of the kind of thing you'll hear from some of these guys that uh, are false prophets. One that 
didn't really start with any biblical interpretation except that it happened to be a millennial deal, which apparently if you have three zeros behind a, a number, that's uh, some kind of significance. This one is the 2000, year 2000 Y2K computer bug. Uh, a lot of us remember that deal. It got picked up by Christians and uh, was made into a big deal. If you weren't, uh, if you weren't old enough to remember what was going on in 2000, let me just say this: uh, because of the way they thought the computers had been programmed, everything was going to go haywire with all the computers in the world when they had to switch over from 1999 to 2000. And uh, uh, it, it got pretty wild. I mean, planes were going to fall out of the sky. Uh, power plants were going to melt down. Anything that had anything to do with the computer. The banks were all closed. They couldn't do any transactions. And basically, there was going to be major catastrophe worldwide. Well, it didn't happen. Uh, right now, there's all kinds of books. Uh, and internet sites related to the rapture and Israel and what's going on in the Middle East. According to the current popular books on prophecy, uh, the generation that witnesses the founding of the modern state of Israel, which happened in 1949, that generation is the generation that will experience the coming of the Antichrist the rapture and the coming of the Antichrist. So there were books in the 80s that were basically saying about 1988, because that's 40 years after the founding of the birth of, of the modern state of Israel, 1948 to 19, uh, 90, uh, 1988 is a generation. Well, didn't work out. So what do you do? Well, you get your fudge factor working again. And you say, well, maybe a generation is more like 70 years instead of 40 years. Maybe we could call uh, a generation 70 years. Or the other way of kind of weaseling out of it was that, uh, well, that was the beginning of the state of Israel, but they didn't have Jerusalem then. And they didn't take over Jerusalem until 1967, 1967 the Six-Day War. So we, we should start counting from then and figure our generation. So anyway, uh, that's the current state of things. A lot of the current, at least the popular view of prophecy, has to do with Israel and what's going on in the Middle East. Although, actually, the next, next big date on the calendar doesn't have to do with the Christian calendar. It has to do with the Mayan calendar. Uh, so, according to that, December of this year, 2012, the Mayan calendar comes to an end, which they, then people are saying, well, that means the world's going to come to an end because, because the Mayans didn't take their calendar any further than that. That's a real good reason to have the end of the world come. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, December 22nd of this year, there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to be all worked up about that day. So that's just a little history of some of the stuff that goes on in relationship to what we're talking about.
especially in relationship to the interpretation of the book of Revelation. The point that uh, I'm trying to make here is Jesus said, But of that day and that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And he says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. It's over and over. We're to be on the alert. We're not uh, to try to set a date. We're just to be on the alert. He said it again in relationship to the, the parable of the ten virgins. You know, five were foolish and five were prudent. They made preparations. They uh, were ready. And he ends that parable off by saying, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. <clears throat> and then Peter says this in Second Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So what's the idea there? Come like a thief. Well, that means sudden and unexpected. You're not going to know when. Just like you don't know when a thief's going to break into your house. But the point is to be on the alert. Now, one way current prophecy pundits get around this is to say, well, yes, we don't know the day or the hour. Jesus said we wouldn't know that. But we can predict the approximate time if we rightly understand the Scriptures. So we know at least what generation things are going to happen in um, if we understand especially the book of Revelation. We can figure out what, what generation things are going to happen in. But even this less specific date-setting is dubious in light of what Jesus said. And I want to show, why don't we turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and uh, verses 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? This is the disciples right before the Christ ascends back to heaven. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and even to the utmost parts of the world. What's he saying? He's, say, he's saying not only don't you know the day and the hour, you don't, you're, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs that, epochs that are uh, in the Father's authority. They're not in your power. They're not in your domain to know that. Uh, what you need to be concerned about is walking in the Spirit and taking the gospel out uh, to others. So... Um, I think overall we could say this. It's always been true that the church needs to be on the alert. What, wherever, whenever, the, the, the admonition is to be on the alert. But that does not mean that we should be constantly trying to figure out when Christ is coming. It means that we should always be morally ready for him to come. 
to paraphrase an old song, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be ready for Jesus but to trust and obey. That's, that's the fifth verse we never sing. I just made it up. So the first red flag is beware of date setters. Beware of date setters. All right, number two. We should be concerned when we're told that we need the latest prophecy book or must go to the latest prophecy seminar in order to understand the end times. That should raise a red flag. The emphasis in the book of Revelation is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the Christians have an ear, you see, and you can hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, these early recipients, the ones who received this letter, would be able to, to receive insight from reading and hearing and heeding the things written in this book. Revelation 22, 6 and 7 says this, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. What's that imply? It means they could understand the book. You can't heed something you can't understand. Blessed is he who heeds the, uh, the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, they would understand enough of what was written to heed the warnings and to find hope in the encouragements from this book. Along the same line, uh, just in this same area, if an interpretation is so complicated and so intricate that those who read the book would never understand what was written, apart from some prophecy expert explaining it to them with a, you know, elaborate charts and detailed explanations, then they would not be responsible for heeding its words. You see? If you had to have some expert come along and explain all this to you, uh, you wouldn't be responsible for not understanding it. But he says, you know, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, I believe the early church, especially those seven churches of Asia that received this letter, substantially understood the book. It was not a great mystery which needed to be have an expert unlock its contents. You see, that denies the whole reason that the book was written. It was a revelation. It was a revelation to the people. If, if you have to have some prophecy expert explain them to you, it's like you need another revelation about the revelation. But this was the revelation. This was the unveiling. Uh, Generally speaking, God hides these things from the wise and intelligent and reveals them to his trusting and obedient babes. That's what we can believe as we look into the scriptures. As we've said previously in other messages, if you want to read something along with the book of Revelation... Read the places in the Old Testament that where the symbolism and, and most of the imagery com, comes from. That's what, the way you'll understand the book better. Read where those symbols were first brought up in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, also, just from what I've said before, I think 
you know, if you want to read another book along with this book, it might be profitable just to read a book of history related to first century church to see what they were facing, what these seven churches had to deal with. That'll help you a lot on understanding the book itself, the book of Revelation. Uh, so, red flag number two. Beware of prophecy experts that will explain the end time details to you that you have to have their book or go to their seminar to understand things, especially if what they're saying are explanations that you would never have come up with on your own by just a simple, prayerful, honest reading of the Scriptures. Beware of that type of prophecy. Number three, we should be concerned if what we're being taught tends to foster a preoccupation with end-time predictions. If what we're being taught just draws you into spending all your time trying to understand prophecy, a preoccupation with end-time predictions, there is a fleshly, unspiritual curiosity that the natural man has that wants to know hidden things. You know what a hidden thing is? It's an occult thing. That's where we get the word occult. It means hidden. You want to know those occult things, uh, especially related to looking into the future. Uh, just to show you what I mean, here's what was written on the back cover of one well-known prophecy book uh, that uh, was, well, this was uh, written shortly before the year 2000. I won't tell you the guy's name, but you'd know him if I mentioned it. Anyway, the author... It says on the back, it says his name, but I'll just say, The author will be your guide on a chilling tour of the world's future battlegrounds as the great tribulation foretold more than 2,000 years ago in the Old and New Testament begins to unfold. You'll meet the world leaders who will bring man to the very edge of extinction and examine the causes of the current global situation, what it all means, what will shortly come to pass? How it will all turn out? So here you, you know, get this book. You know what all these world leaders are doing related to how the Bible presents things. And you, you know, you'll see it says, uh, uh, you'll meet the world leaders that will bring us to the very edge of extinction. And it will all be explained to you what will shortly come to pass. So anyway... Those kind of books give a person a feeling of power and superior insight into the future. But that's not what God is aiming at in our lives. We already said that Jesus said it's not for us to know the times or the epochs. These things are under the Father's authority. He's the one that has the power. We're not supposed to be empowered in this area. Uh, we are to take the gospel to the world, not spending our time speculating about the end of the world. Another, <clears throat> another problem that can arise from an overemphasis on prophecy is that our view of prophecy, that is eschatology, the view of the end times, becomes a test of orthodoxy. If you define if a person really is a Bible believer 
by if whether he believes your view of prophecy, um, you're making, I think, a mistake. I think this is not what God would have us to do. Um, eschatology should not be the test of orthodoxy. Good Christians, the reason for that is that good Christians have differed, they've held differing views uh, on the meaning of a lot of the things in Revelation. <clears throat> and I'd say this, actually the, the best known view of eschatology today was not even around about 150 years ago, so it sure, certainly should not be made a test of orthodoxy. It wasn't even around uh, a few years ago. Under this same heading of preoccupation with prophecy, we should also be concerned if our view of Revelation tends to make us anxious about the end times. You're so preoccupied with this, so uh, um, concerned about this, that you're anxious and worried. If we're, if we're worried and fretful about the future, you're not living in faith. This, is not what the, this was not what the book of Revelation was given for, to make us worry about doomsday. <clears throat> that whole idea of doomsday is not even really what we're to think of in relationship to the book of Revelation. It was a book given to us, <clears throat> to the church, for hope and to, to encourage our faith and perseverance. So, uh, the fact is that there will always be some new crisis or some new date for the end of the world if we listen to the doomsday predictors. They're, they're always going to have something. You'll always be worked up. <coughs> Such teachings make for exciting movies, sensational best-selling books, and even sell guns and gold and generators. <laughs> but it does not foster righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is what, which is what God wants us to have, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. One of the main things we should glean from the book of Revelation is that God's in control. We can rest in his control of things. Things will often get very bad in this world, but Christ has overcome the world and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And because he has overcome, we can overcome by faith in him. That's what the book's about. It's about overcoming. Uh, faith, not fear, is the victory that overcomes the world. The book of Revelation was given to help God's people stand strong in the midst of great tribulation. So, the point of what I just said, this would be number three, beware of preoccupation with prophecy, especially if the preoccupation fosters pride, sectarianism, or fear. It's, you're down the wrong track if that's happening. Now, these last two that I'm going to bring up, uh, deal more specifically with one particular brand of interpretation that's popular today. And uh, you, maybe some of you have um, been uh, read along these lines. You just have to think about what I'm saying here and consider why I think these are red flags. 
Number four, beware of any view of God's revelation that seems to take people back into the shadows of the Mosaic Covenant instead of emphasizing the reality of the New Covenant fulfillment in Christ. Anything that would take you back instead of going forward. It's always essential for us to read the Old Testament, to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, not the other way around. Paul insists, for example... He says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with with regard to a religious festival, uh, a new moon, a celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. So he's saying, don't go back to that. Don't go back to the shadows. Uh, Stay in the light that God has given us through Christ in the New Testament. Now, what am I talking about specifically? I would be very leery of interpretations that say God's desire is that the temple be rebuilt, that the Old Testament sacrifices be reinstituted, and that the priesthood be reestablished. I would be very leery of that. Why? Because it's going backwards. It's going back into the shadows instead of staying in the light that God has given us in the New Testament. The New Testament tells us these Old Testament shadows shadows find their fulfillment in Christ and his church, and no one should revert back to the types and shadows which Christ has fulfilled. You see, that's what the whole, I mean, that's what the book of, well, there's a a bunch of the books of the Bible and New Testament, but especially the book of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to the shadows. Uh, Let me just read a couple verses to you here. Out of Hebrews. Um, now the main point of what has been said is this: We have such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of God, right hand of the throne of the Majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched in not man. What's he talking about? He's talking about Christ in heaven being in the true tabernacle. Why would we, why would we want to have a tabernacle or a temple rebuilt? Why would we want another priesthood when Christ is our high priest at the right hand of God right now? He goes on to say um, that that those that whole thing is uh, that whole tabernacle and priesthood and 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 uh, sacrifices they served as a copy and shadow of heavenly things, a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. And he says this. But now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted upon better promises. We have a better covenant, more excellent ministry, better promises all found in Christ. Don't go back. Don't go back to the old. Then he talks about this new covenant in chapter 8. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. And he says this, verse 13, But when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Those, those shadows, those types are now obsolete. And he, goes, he says it this way, But whatever is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to disappear. And I think, I think actually that what was probably 
being conveyed here is that this whole system was going to be brought to an end in 70 AD when the temple and, and Jerusalem was destroyed. It's ready to disappear, that whole system. The point is, is that we need to be very careful about saying that these things need to be reinstituted. There's a progressive forward movement of biblical revelation from Old Testament shadows to New Testament substance, and it's wrong for people to go back to the shadows. Why? Well, it belittles the work of Christ. To say that there needs to be sacrifices again, to say that there needs to be a priesthood set up again, that belittles what Christ has done. <clears throat> he was a once-for-all-time sacrifice. He, his is an eternal priesthood. No one should ever be encouraged to revert back to Old Testament types and shadows when those things have been gloriously fulfilled in Christ. The substance cannot give way again to the shadow because the shadows are done away with. You might say it this way, the light has come in Christ. Why go back to the shadows? So, red flag number four, beware of teachings that take people back into the shadows. <clears throat> number five, and this is the last one uh, for this evening. I believe it should be a red flag. We should have a red flag related to an interpretation that says that God wants to keep the Jewish people and the church distinct and that he has a different plan for the Jews' salvation than he has for the church. I think that should raise a massive red flag for us. To me, this flies in the face of clear biblical teaching concerning the way of salvation for all mankind, both Jew and Gentile, and God's desire to bring both groups together in Christ. The great Jewish convert, Paul, said concerning Israel, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Just to, what he's saying is just the same way I've been saved, my brethren need to be saved. They need to see Christ. They need to trust in Christ. They need to believe on the work of Christ. And he goes on to emphasize this by, he says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the plan and the purpose of God is the same for the Jew as for the Gentile, that they be saved by believing the gospel. That's, that's God's purpose and plan. Another Jewish convert, Peter, said it this way. Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcomed to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus, he is Lord of all. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this one who has been appointed by God is judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness 
that through his name everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. The point I'm trying to make here is that the message of the early church, which was primarily Jewish, was that everybody's going to be saved the same way. And there's not a distinction between the way God wants to save a Jew and the way God wants to save a Gentile or the people that are part of his church. Uh, if an interpretation of the book of Revelation majors on a supposed distinction God makes between Israel and the church, it's missing the New Testament presentation of what God's great plan of redemption is, the breaking down of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and making both into one new organism, the church of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. This is what Ephesians is all about. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace. I mean, he says it over and over in this passage. And he might reconcile them in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jew. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, one household, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, bringing these groups together, is growing into a one holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I don't see how Paul could have emphasized it over and over anymore. He's not trying to keep Jew and Gentile. He's not trying to keep the church and, and the Jewish people apart, separated. He's trying to bring them together, make them one. And that's what he has done. Uh, he's brought them near. He, he's brought the two groups into one. He's made the two into one new man. Uh, they're, they have access, access in one spirit. They're being fitted together. They're being built together into one dwe dwelling place of God. So the point is that any interpretation that implies God has two separate chosen people, the Jews and the church, should raise red flags. God's chosen people are one group, one new man, one body, the church, and that's made up of all who trust Jesus Christ, irregardless of their race or ethnic background. So, uh, that is a few, I think, red flags that we should consider in interpretations of the book of Revelation and things we hear concerning the book of Revelation. Um, I'd just like to say this in conclusion. God alone in his infinite wisdom holds the details of the future. It's within his sovereign will, and some of this is yet for us to know, and we're not 
supposed to try to dig in and spend our time trying to figure out these things that God has not revealed. Uh, the ultimate future belongs to God. As for us, His people, the Church, as we look for the blessed hope of Christ's return, we must continue to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We're looking for the blessed hope, but we got to live in this present age sensibly, righteously, and godly.